I really ask um, something of you guys. Because I've been in the congregation, I've been in the crowd, and I know that how, I know how often we will sit there and desire to hear from God's word, but oftentimes our mind is not present. We're thinking about what we have to do the rest of the day and what's going on this week and what other stresses might come our way. And too quickly, you guys, our thoughts and our minds are taken from what God desires us to learn. And so I'm challenging you this morning because I'm feeling this. I think all the time we're in a spiritual battle, but Satan does not want us to learn what is at our fingertips. And, and we don't often consciously think about that. You know, we, we expect Satan attacking in big ways, but sometimes it's in the smallness of things where our mind is just wandering. So this morning, let's focus our hearts and our minds on God's Word and God's teaching and ask that He do big things. So let's, let's pray. Father, You are powerful. You are mighty. You are, you are great. And God, I know that in Your power, You can keep those distractions from our minds. So this morning, Father, I pray that you would keep us focused on your word. Keep us focused on what you're teaching us. And may we leave today being challenged in a new way and, and feeling closer to knowledge in you. God, I just ask for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, you guys, if you have your books, iPads, phones, whatever you got, your Bibles, um, we're going to be continuing on in the book of Luke, chapter 12. We'll start in verse 4. And we're going to go all the way to 34. So it's a big section. And I'm going to, I'm going to take it in bits and pieces so, so we don't have to swallow it all. Um, but before we get going with this message, I want to share with you a true story of one of my junior high basketball practices. In fact, I think we got a slide of, of my junior high basketball team. This is seventh grade, y'all. And I'm in that picture somewhere. I'll give you a hot two seconds to figure it out, but... I'm number 32. I'm right in the middle, okay? I'm the tall, long string bean of a kid, okay? That was my, my junior high basketball team 29 years ago, all right? Uh, yeah, hold on. Don't <laughs> um, and, I, and I'll tell you, that year was, that year was a, 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 a weird year. Um, it was my early teens, and I, and I remember just hitting a growth spurt like none other. In fact, my parents had to buy me new shoes about every three or four months, you know. Not only because I was hard on them and they wouldn't last, but also I was growing out of them. And I remember that year, too, like having growing pains in my legs so bad. I would, I would go home and I would lay on the couch that night and just, just like ache and hurt. And, and my mom even brought me to the doctor one time because she wasn't sure what was going on. And he goes, look, he's just, he's just growing really fast and it's normal. And, and she goes, okay. He goes, just, you know, ibuprofen, whatever it might be. But, but I grew to be one of the tallest kids in my class very quickly. My feet were too big for me. My legs and arms, they were skinny and uncoordinated, you know. Um, and I was weighing in at about 80, 85 pounds. Honestly, a, a good stiff wind walking to school would blow me off the sidewalk. That's, that's what I looked like. And that year was also my first year of organized school basketball. I had played AAU and kind of weekend teams, but seventh grade basketball, you know, I was, I was excited for that. 
And the, and the truth is, not only was I a little longer, a little taller than the other guys, but I could jump. I don't know why. God gifted me with the ability to jump. And I remember one of my first practices, um, somehow before practice started, somebody brought a miniature basketball and I could palm it, you know, it's pretty easy to palm. And so on a whim, knowing that I could jump and knowing that I could actually jump and touch the rim, I just took that mini basketball and I ran towards the rim and I dunked it as a seventh grader. Of course, I was immediately cool, right? But the coach saw that too. And so I was already, he was already making assumptions of my skill. Now, our coach was a great guy. Um, he was a grade school teacher. In fact, he's the upper left there, the guy in the white shirt. He was a grade school teacher. He had coached seventh grade basketball for a lot of years, and he was really well respected. He knew what he was coaching and teaching. And honestly, I think we only lost one or two games that season. We were, we were pretty good. And, and as the season started, I was one of the five or six guys that started regularly in games. I wasn't the best shooter. I wasn't the best basketball player, but I was a good rebounder. You know, I could jump higher than a lot of the guys. And if I got that rebound or got that fast break, because my legs were long, I could stride down the court a lot faster than the other guys. But I remember one practice, one practice specifically, and it's clear in my mind. The coach expected a lot of us, but particularly that practice, he was on me for every move that I made. And I remember that practice, him just yelling, no, Ryan, no, no, don't do that, no, no, go this way. And you guys, just hearing that voice yelling at me, yelling at me, I could do nothing right. And I was melting. And if you guys know me, I'm a pretty tender-hearted guy. And on top of that, when I'm not doing well or I'm not pleasing somebody, I get down on myself. I take it personally. And I felt like I was letting my coach down. And, and in, in the same respect, I was just putting myself down. You know, he was, he was yelling. It was scary. I didn't know what he was going to do. Finally, he, he let me out of the drill. He told me to go take a breather, get a drink of water, and on my way back to the court, I kind of tried to make myself unseen. I stood at the back of the team as they were watching this drill continue on. But honestly, the emotions got the best of me, and I sat there and just started tearing up. Tears started rolling down my face. I was so disappointed and so scared. And he happened to glance over and saw me, and I'm thankful he didn't call me out, but when he saw those tears, he, he kind of stopped the rest of the guys and said, hey, everybody go get a, go get a breather, take a, take a drink break. But then he said, Ryan, why don't you stay here? Everybody left, and I stood there, and he came up to me, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he quietly and calmly asked what was going on, and I immediately just apologized. I apologized for screwing up so much that night. I apologized for making him mad. I apologized for just not being a good ball player, and he just began to chuckle, just laugh. And he told me this, and I'll never forget this. He looked me in the eye, and he said, look, I'm not disappointed in you. And he said, I know I'm hard on you. 
He said, but it's because I see that you have so much potential. He said, you're one of the hardest working guys on the team, and I know if I push you, you'll rise to the occasion. And he said, so, so know this. If I'm yelling at you, it's because I care. Now, I am not telling any of you guys to yell at anybody to motivate them, all right? That is not the way to motivate people. But in a strange way, it spoke to me. From that point on, I looked at this coach, and he wasn't this mean, scary, you know, angry guy that some thought he was. He actually cared. And when he was yelling my name from practices, in practices that year and even in games, I translated that into he wants me to do better. He cares about me. And it redirected my thoughts and I gained a respect for this man that I hadn't had before. And that respect followed in the rest of my junior high and senior high years because he always attended every one of our games for the next five years of my schooling. He was stern, he was a bit scary, but you guys, he truly cared. And this morning, that's what we're going to talk a little bit about. You see, I think it's sometimes hard for us to wrap our human minds around that. We can't understand what it means that somebody would be so hard but loving. And so as I mentioned, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, we're going to go from 4 to 34, but we're going to... Take it in chunks. So if you have your Bibles, let's start with this first piece that I think God wants us to learn in 12, verse 4. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 says this, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs on your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The fear of God. If you've grown up in the church or you have spent any time in religious circles at all, you've probably heard that phrase said a time or two. But that statement can actually be a very confusing statement. The fear of God. Let's look at it plainly. You see, our worldview, especially our Christian worldview, characterizes God as a loving God, right? Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And people who claim to be Christians, or even people who claim not Christ, but would probably say things about God, would all agree that God is love. They say that. And if somebody is identified with love, then why would you fear them, right? Seems odd. To be fearful of something that is supposed to be good, that just doesn't make sense. We know that God is love, though, because the Scriptures say it over and over again. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. 
John, 1 John 4, 8 says, If anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Ephesians 3, 17 through 18 says, And that Christ may dwell in the hearts through faith, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. Church, the Bible speaks of God's love over and over again. God loves people. That is certain, and we can keep that as truth in our heads and our hearts. God loves you no matter what. Now here's the tough part. In this passage, verse 4 through 7, Luke, the author, tells us we should fear somebody. (laughs) He's telling us to be afraid of somebody. And who was it that we are to fear? Let's read this again. It says, fear him who has the authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. See, Ryan, I told you, the Bible contradicts. How can somebody so loving be the person you're supposed to fear? That doesn't make any sense. I will tell you, no, it does not contradict. The Scriptures don't do that. It's telling us truth. We should both understands God's love for us as well as fear Him at the same time. Let me explain. I think we need to start with the word fear. You see, too quickly, you and I translate that word into something that engages us in a negative mindset. It's a protective reaction that is built into our body and our mind. When you feel fear or engage with something that causes fear, you often quickly run from or repel the situation. Fear in that context teaches us to run from it, to leave it alone. However, that is not the fear that is being spoken about in this passage. The word fear in this passage shows a sense of admiration for how great something is. It indicates the power and the might that something has. And as a result of this fear, you gain a respect for it. In fact, you might even begin to admire it because of how great it is. You might even begin to follow it more because you know how much good it is for you to do so. It's an odd twist of thought. I get that. But again, it takes some thinking and understanding to truly comprehend what is being said here. If you remember a few weeks back, I taught on prayer and how we should be praying. And it was in that sermon that I read from Revelation chapter 4, giving you a description of the throne room, if you remember that. Reminding us that when we pray, we should keep in mind the grandeur of whom we are praying to. Do you remember that? This fear we should be engaging in is entering into that same understanding. God is that great. And yet he desires to have a relationship with us. Why? Because he is a loving God. And because of his greatness, 
We need to have a healthy, good fear and reverence of Him. A God with this amount of power and might is easy to fear properly. That is, if we understand we are in, uh, what we are in comparison to Him. I was fortunate enough to be born into an incredibly loving family. And I know I shared the story about the coach I had, but another similar relationship would be the one I have with my dad. Maybe some of you can relate, but you see, I knew all the time that my dad loves me. That was, that was certain. He clothed me. He fed me. He cared for me in times of need. But there were also times when I feared him. Dad could bring the wrath when I deserved it. <laughs> Not out of anger or abuse, he lovingly punished when I deserved it. I was truly, or it was truly an act of love and concern when punishment was dealt for me. He wanted to correct the situation. But I knew despite what was brought upon myself and what I had to endure, my dad still continued to care and love for me. This section of this passage is telling us the very same thing. God is to be feared. But we need to remember how valuable we are to him. Nothing will change that church. Nothing. God is loving, but he must also be just. We must realize our relationship with him and how great he is and gain a healthy fear of him. And if we can begin to learn that and act on at that, it will lead us to what I want to talk about next, what comes next in this next passage. It's an understanding and an acknowledgement of exactly who God is and our standing in front of him. So if you would, let's read the next section, verse 8. And I say to you, Anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before, before others will be, denied, will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven." Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. As I've grown in my understanding and belief of the character of God, I've also understood my position as it pertains to Him. What I mean by this is understanding the grandeur and the character and the nature of God has brought me to a couple conclusions. And the first one is this. I'm nothing. Nothing might be a strong word, but I, I, think, it's, I think it's the right word. You see, we do a, a, a Bible study on Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings with our girls and, and others that attend, and we have been going through creation and understanding how God created things. And the reality is, you guys, God has put man just above the creepy crawlies of the world. That's all we are. Makes you feel good, right? <laughs> 
We aren't always what we think we are. We aren't as great as we think we are. And second thing I'm learning, and I'm just beginning to know and understand a little bit more of the character of God, I truly see that the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. And as I know and understand more, and the Holy Spirit reveals things to me, my faith and confidence in Jesus is growing a new foundation that cannot be shaken. In this passage, Luke, the author, is sharing some heavy truths about the acknowledgement of God. You see, if you truly have a personal relationship with God, if you call yourself a Christian, you have proclaimed what Matthew wrote in Matthew 16, 24, that you agreed to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, right? For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. You see, to deny yourself, church, means to put your needs, wants, and wishes secondary to the desire of God's. To take up the cross means that you know you've made a decision to follow him and it will bring consequences and challenges that are great and small. And to follow after me tells us that we are not, let me say that again, we are not in the lead. We are to seek God's will above all else in our life and gain the patience that we need to wait for him to reveal his wishes. When we follow in this way and we actually, actively pursue Christ as proclaimed, there will be an understanding and a reverence gained for all that God tells us he is. We wouldn't even question it. We would be so grateful and thankful for who he is and what he has done for us, that we would do anything for him. Remember that Revelation 3.16 promises, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. God sees the heart. God sees the heart. Not even you and I can do that. And even though we do our best, we can't match up. And I'm not saying that we should go around judging people's hearts. That's not the right thing to do. But the scriptures tell us that God will see through everything and he knows what is hiding and he knows what's really going on inside our minds and hearts. He knows who is lukewarm and who is not. He knows who is going through the motions. He knows who is real in their walk with Christ. The question is, are you and I doing a good job of being real or are we doing a good job of hiding it? If we are living a true life in Christ, we will not be perfect and you will not always do what's right. But again, God sees your heart and he knows when a mistake is a mistake, but he also knows who has blatantly denied Christ and his gift of grace. He knows when a man or woman has chosen to deny the existence of God, which in reality shows a soul that actively rebels against the character of God and who God is. 
And in this passage, God makes us a promise. And when God makes a promise, he cannot go back on it. It's not in his character. He is more solid on it than any human has ever been. And if we are bold and proclaim him in all situations, he promises us that he will do the same before the angels and God. That should give you a sense of security. But if you are willing to deny Christ and who God is, this is where God sees what we can't. He is able to determine if it's a moment of weakness or foolishness or if it's real. And those who deny Christ for real will not be forgiven, resulting obviously in eternal separation for God. When you and I speak on behalf of the character and the existence of God, that's a good thing. It should be a result of us gaining again an understanding of just how big God is and how little we are. And again, in this passage, God promises to speak through us, giving us the words to say when we need it. I think that's an incredible thing. God will supply me with what to say. And honestly, I think that's a much better situation than me using my own words. I've messed that up a time or two. My wife could tell you that. So just to recap a little bit, when we understand what it means to have a healthy fear of God, we begin to understand just who God is and how great He is, encouraging us to testify to others about Him. And when we begin to grow in the knowledge of God's greatness, we begin to see the value of things here on earth versus the things that God has promised us in eternity. And that leads us to this next section. If you would, please read with me, starting in verse 13. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to them, who appointed me judge or arbitrator over you? Then again he told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed. Because one of one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable, a story. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I, have, I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this. He said, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, our culture, let's admit it, it's a get all you can get type of culture. 
I see it every day. Status, respect, and so much more is dependent on what you have and what you gain. And what do you do with all this when you die? (laughs) You don't do anything with it. That's the irony of it. Gain all this stuff and do nothing with it when you die. Sounds like we really have it figured out, right? The truth is you don't have to be a rich man to end up treasuring things like this. This is not a rich man's practice. Some of you know that I'm an avid outdoorsman. I love that anything that gets me outside and hunting is one of the passions that I have. And if you see my office wall, because my wife won't let me have them in my house, I have treasures mounted on it. Deer heads, skulls, antlers that remind me of hunts. These are trophies that I treasure. And I could sit and tell you the details of each set of horns on my wall. And that's not to mention the other dozen or so that I have tucked in the corner of our basement. We treasure so many things that don't matter. And then we hold on to them and we make ridiculous excuses why we need to keep them or why we need to have them. This has caused me to wonder, what am I doing here? What are you and I gaining by by putting value in so many of these things that aren't going to last. And in this passage, God is pointing out the folly of human choice. He's noting that we need to understand where value lies. We need to understand what is most important in our life. The previous section we just talked about challenged us to complete value in God and acknowledge Him in the position that He needs to be in our life and declaring that nothing else matters compared to Him. That is the most important thing that we should do. We need to testify to the character of God and share that with everybody that we encounter. We need to see the value of things that are eternally important not the things that are temporarily important. If we value God above all else, then treat all else as it truly is, which is nothing. (laughs) Our value does not lie in the things that we have or do. It does not lie in, in what you drive or how big your house is or how much you earn or what skills you have or how many friends you have. Those pale in comparison to the knowledge and true understanding of who God is. That stuff might easily be given up if we truly gain that understanding of how great our God is. And their values will become less and less as we gain a closer relationship to God. Which leads me to another truth that I, I want to talk about in this next section. So if you would, let's, let's finish this out. Verses 22 through 34. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, 
what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth more than the birds? Can't any of you add one moment to his, or can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass which is in the field today and thrown on the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you? You have little faith. Don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink and don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be, for, be provided to you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, I want to reiterate, God loves us. Towards the beginning of this message, I talked a bit about the Scripture and the truth about the character of God. He is a loving God, and He does care for you and me. And this is all the more reason that we should worship Him and have a closer relationship with Him. But you see, our focus is too often in the world we live in. The imperfect corrupted world that we try to convince ourselves has a hope of being good. We know that's not true. Truthfully, we live in a world and a culture that is terribly wrong and sinful. And it continues this pattern of denying who God is and what he has done for mankind. And we worry about a wide number of things. You guys, nervousness and stress and anxiety rule us because we allow it to sometimes. And most of all, we forget our place in all of this. We are supposed to submit to a great and mighty God who loves us so much that he gave us his only son to pay the penalty for our sins. Now, if that's not love, I don't know what is. God makes you and I a promise here. And I know that the character of God cannot fail in his promises. He says in this passage, and he encourages us to store up treasures in heaven, in him. And because of that, he promises that he will care for us. Verse 31 and 32 says, But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided to you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Give us the kingdom. What a promise, you guys. So why do we follow to, follow to, to worry and anxiety and stress? Why do we sometimes let those things rule us to a point that we can't do anything? Sometimes we are paralyzed. 
I'm sure the reasons are deep. And everybody's different, but I want to remind you we don't need to worry. I, I wonder if we, if we just need to do a better job of controlling those emotions when they attempt to take over, if we would realize that it's really a spiritual battle raging inside of us. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, Paul declares this truth. Listen. For although we live in flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. As we take captive every thought to obey Christ. What Paul is saying is things are going to happen in our flesh and we could try to battle that, but the greatest power that we have is in Jesus and understanding who God is and the power that he has. And he's saying, church, people, take captive every thought because there is a power that you can use to fix this. It is a war for some not to be caught up in worry and stress and anxiety. I have met people who are plagued with that, and it's real. And I know it truly has an effect on us, but in some cases, I understand we need to talk to somebody to help us walk through these situations. Counselors, it's okay. But I ask that we remember this as we walk through those dark things in our life that we understand there is a greater power, power that is greater than our flesh. It's a loving God. And He is strong enough to give you victory in those moments. But I fear too often we forget about that and we, and we try to wrestle with these things on our own. As Paul says at the end of that verse, we need to take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. Church, with every thought, we need to remember also who cares for us. This section tells us God will give us what, our, what we need. We don't need to worry. And I think, church, it's time for us to have a sincere confession if we say that we are Christians and we are followers of Christ, then we actually need to do the work to strive for that. It's not a snap your fingers thing. We have to be active in pursuing this. We need to fear God for his greatness. We need to give him the respect and honor that is demanded by his faithfulness and character. We need to be bold in declaring who you are in Christ and who he is. To share that with those who don't know this story. Be bold because you can't help but to be. We need to store our treasures in heaven. Put aside the things that keep us distracted from Christ. The things that will not last. And finally, while understanding all of this, we need to know. Know that God loves us. 
And we can't even really put into words how much he loves us. It's an intentional love that will fill you with more love than you have ever known before. And in knowing that, we need to trust that God will always care for us no matter what comes our way. It's time, church, to do something. Let's stop being passive. (laughs) Start being active. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and your truth. I thank you for how great you are and the promises you make. And Father, you will bring those promises to truth. God, we are weak. And sometimes... We don't have it all together. But Father, you declare that you love us. And with that love, you will take care of us. I pray that we gain an understanding that's new, that we gain a perspective of who you are that would be real, more real than it's ever been before. And Father, that we would wake up every day desiring to know you more because We are so encouraged by that. God, may we be active in our pursuit of you. In Jesus' name.